We're going to be turning to uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 11. John, chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, And the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. And there were set there six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus saith unto them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he saith unto them, Draw out now. And they bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. When the ruler of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew the water knew, the governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and manifested forth His glory, and His disciples believed on Him. So, we come to this portion of John, we're still very early on in John. You could say chapter 1 as a whole is uh, an intro and just setting the stage for Jesus' earthly ministry. If we were to think about the book um, from here, just structure-wise, if you know I like this sort of thing, it's helpful for me, maybe it'll be helpful for you. A lot of people structure the rest of this gospel as chapters 2 through 11 are the book of Christ's signs and chapters 12 through 21, the book of Christ's glory. So the intent of what's going to come up from now until verse, uh, I'm sorry, chapter 11 is we're going to see one sign after the next and one sign after the next. And then from 12 through 21, we will see Christ's glory be put on display. Now, the reason that I say that and the reason why it's helpful, uh, particularly as we start here, is that it helps us to make sense out of why would these, why would, why are these stories placed in here? Um, maybe if you've done some reading ahead and you knew we were going to be here, you read, you know, these 11 verses, you knew they were there. But it's honestly kind of an odd story, isn't it? Jesus goes to a wedding. They run out of wine. He makes more wine. The end. I mean, if we're just thinking about factual details, that's kind of an odd story. So uh, there's obviously a few more things to put in there, but one of the very helpful things about this portion of Scripture is verse 11. And so we're going to jump ahead to verse 11, and that's where we're going to start. Because in verse 11, John takes the time to tell us why he included this and what we should be focusing on as we read this 
portion. So verse 11 says, this beginning of miracles, that just means this was the first miracle that Jesus performed. Now the word miracle here is a word for... um, Uh, It does mean miracle, but it means more than that. It's really a word that's translated sign. And John uses this, um, it's a Greek word, uh, throughout his gospel. And a sign is a miracle that was intended to point to something beyond itself. So what I mean by that is, when Jesus turns the water into wine, it's meant in a symbolic way or it's meant in a representative way to point us to something beyond the fact that water turned into wine. There's some symbolism here. It's John does this throughout, um, talking about the Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. John's very careful about the word he uses there. The Word became flesh and He tabernacled among us. What are we supposed to understand? Well, we're supposed to understand that God became man in Christ, but we're also supposed to understand the temple and the tabernacle from the Old Testament. Jesus is coming as a greater fulfillment of that. This is a type of, or they were a type of who He is, so symbolic meaning. Um, So again, this first of signs did Jesus in Cana of Galilee, and what? And He manifested forth His glory. Manifested forth His glory. Now, what that means is, Jesus, in this occasion, through this sign, clearly revealed, or He clearly made known His glory. Now, this the word glory is a word that literally means His His weight refers to His greatness, His majesty, His splendor. Jesus here, for the first time, puts this on display through this sign. And then finally, and because of this, His disciples believed on Him. You'll notice that at the end of verse 11. So why is it important that we that we get this nailed down in our mind first. That as we approach verses 1 through 10, that we realize we need to be focusing on the fact that Jesus, um, He did this sign as a manifestation of His glory, and as a result, His disciples believed on Him. Well, one of the reasons why is because um, if we're not careful, we will miss the point, and we will focus on things that will lead us down rabbit trails that are true, they're just not what the text is intending on us to get. What do I mean by that? Well, I mean this. When we come to John chapter 2, this is not primarily a proof text to endorse marriage. We could spend 30 minutes talking about what a special thing it was that Jesus showed up at this marriage and God's endorsement of marriage and so forth and so on. Uh, if you miss that in Genesis, I don't know what to tell you. Okay, That's not what this text is about. Marriage is part of the context, but, but that's not what this is primarily about. So to spend a lot of time uh, proof texting this about marriage would be to miss the point. Secondly, this is not a proof text 
for God's take on wine or alcohol. Okay? Now, that's definitely part of the story. Matter of fact, that's part of the sign. But John doesn't take the time and neither does Jesus take the time here to develop um, an ethic concerning alcohol. Now, through observation, we're going to obviously learn a few things. But if we were to take this text as an opportunity to run through Scripture, saying everything that Scripture says about alcohol, and miss the fact that this text is supposed to highlight a sign that Jesus did that would point us to His glory that led to His disciples' belief, you can see we've, in the big scheme of things, we've, we've wasted this text. Okay? Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't be interested in what God has to say about alcohol. There are other places for that. But there are bigger things on the plate here. Okay? So, John, as he's putting these signs in John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31, you remember John said, we could have, there are, there are so many of these signs that Jesus did that it would be impossible for us to put all these and include all these in the gospel. But the ones that we did include, we included so that you might believe. Now, what I'm, what I'm getting at here is John handpicked on purpose these signs for a reason. So the fact that turning water into wine made it in means that John has something big in mind. So let's walk our way through the text. Walk our way through the text. The first thing we notice about this text is that there is a wedding. Okay, Verses 1 through 2. The third day, there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and His disciples to the marriage. Now, the wedding is obviously a part of the text. It's part of the, uh, the context that we're in. It begins by saying, and the third day. Okay, this is not the third day in chronological order of what John's been going over since chapter 1. It's actually day 7. But it's three days after Jesus encounters Nathaniel. Three days after the previous thing that John just finished talking about. He's in Cana of Galilee. This is about 25 miles southwest of Bethsaida. So um, that's from John 1.44. That's where he encountered Nathaniel. From there they would have traveled, probably taken them about a day, and here they are. We learn about this wedding that Mary was there and Jesus and His disciples were called to that wedding. At this point, Jesus has five disciples. You'll remember, Andrew and some unnamed disciple. We don't know who he was. A lot of people think it was John. Uh, Peter, Philip, uh, and Nathaniel. And so... These five, along with Jesus and Mary, show up to this wedding. Now, something that we ought to know about weddings in the ancient Near East and really even in modern day Middle Eastern cultures, um, weddings are an occasion for extended celebration. Okay, It's not just a rehearsal dinner, a ceremony, and a couple of hours of uh, um, a uh, reception. Uh, Many times, particularly in the ancient Near East, we're talking about a week's worth of celebrating. Okay, um, it's 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 big, and in this culture, at this wedding, 
most, if not every member of the family would have been there, even extended family members. And most of the village would have been there as well. So this would have been a very populated, very joyous occasion. This is a big celebration. Everybody's involved that's around for the most part. And, uh, and they mean to have a good time. I mean, they're, they're there to celebrate this marriage. It's a, uh, it's a time for rejoicing. It's a very joyous occasion. You need to keep that in mind. So we have the wedding. Secondly, we have the woman. That would be Mary, verses 3 through 5. When they wanted wine, now the word wanted there is the same as in, uh, we should understand that the same as we would Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. So when they lacked wine, the wine ran out. The mother of Jesus said unto him, they have no wine. And Jesus saith unto her, woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. So first we see Mary's run into a problem. Now the fact that Mary's coming to Jesus and asking him, or not really asking him, but telling him that there's no wine, indicates that Mary must have had some kind of involvement in this wedding, keeping the food going, keeping the drinks going, keeping something going. Because this would have been a very, very big deal. Okay, This is a culture that's what we would call a, a shame culture. It would have been where shame is a big deal. Uh, if you were, if you were uh, shamed or if you were publicly humiliated, that would carry far more ramifications than it would if you're shamed or publicly humiliated here uh, in our culture. Uh, the groom would have been responsible uh, for all the provisions, and it was such a big deal that there could even be legal ramifications. So his wife's parents could have taken him to court for running out of wine. How's that? It's a big deal. Right? That, that We laugh at that, but I guarantee you he wasn't laughing. So, Mary comes to Jesus and says... We're out of wine. So the question is, why would she come to Jesus and say that? Well, on the surface you might think, because she knew Jesus could do miracles. But you'll remember John chapter eleven, uh, John chapter 2 verse 11 says, this was the first miracle that Jesus ever did. So Mary's not used to seeing Jesus doing miracles. She didn't come for that. Probably what happened was, and we're, we're filling in some details, it's a little bit of speculation, but we'll, we'll notice as the gospel goes on, it's not just here, but also, also in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you don't ever hear anything else about Joseph, Mary's husband Joseph. Probably he had died, um, and probably Mary had grown just to depend on Jesus, just as her older son and uh, so she's going to Jesus and she's just looking for some wisdom, maybe looking for how do we solve this problem or maybe just sharing it with them. It is reasonable to think that whenever Mary comes to Jesus and says, we've run out of wine, she's wanting him to do something. Right? Maybe not a miracle, but she's wanting him to do something. And here's how we know that. Jesus' response. His response is, 
in verse 4, He saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Now this is an odd response. It's particularly odd to us. I wouldn't encourage any of you children to address your mother as woman. Sounds like something more from a comedy skit than it does Scripture, doesn't it? But in, in, in this day, this word that's used is a, uh, it's really a polite way of addressing someone at the time. It would be the equivalent of us saying ma'am um, in Southern culture. So it's not, Jesus isn't being rude. Uh, he's also, it's just, just worth saying as far as the response as a whole, uh, he's also um, he's also not going out of his way to be sappy here. He is going to make a pretty firm statement, but it's not a rude statement. And so he says, "Woman, um, what have I to do with thee?" Now, this is a again, if the woman part was kind of funny, the 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 rest of the statement is just kind of weird. What have I to do with thee? And it really was an idiom that just simply means, what does this have to do with me or you? What does this have to do with me or you? And what that was intended to respond, or what that was intended to convey here was, um, I'm, I'm no longer under your authority. You can't come and tell me what to do here. Now, you've got to take the whole answer for this not to be rude. Woman, what have I to do with thee? My hour has not yet come. Okay, So contextually, Jesus has started his earthly ministry. Mary comes to him. Mary wants him to do something here. And essentially what he says is, you can no longer tell me what to do as, as, as far as my earthly ministry goes, my hour has not yet come. I'm under the authority of my Father. Now that might seem odd to you that He would say that, but it, maybe as we move forward, it'll, it'll become a little more clear. I would say this, if we don't understand anything else out of chapter 2, this first section here, Mary comes to Jesus and says, we've run out of wine. And Jesus really highlights the fact that Mary has no special sway on him. Essentially, what we see is Jesus does something, but he doesn't do it because Mary asked him to do it. As a little side note, this passage really does fly in the face of the Catholic doctrine that Mary somehow intercedes for us to Christ because she has his ear in a special way. If you read through the Gospels, you find that's just not the case. When Jesus starts His earthly ministry, He does more to distance Himself from Mary than He does to make us think she has some sort of special influence. You remember later on whenever somebody would come up and they would say, your mother and your brothers are outside waiting on you. And He says, who are my brothers? Who is my mother? And so, Jesus says here, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. That's a phrase 
again, that Jesus is going to use about five other times in this gospel. And his hour that he's referring to here is the time that God the Father had chosen for the glory of Christ to be revealed. We know that because in John chapter 12, verse 23, Jesus says, my hour has come. The hour for the Son of Man to be glorified has come. And so what Jesus is saying to Mary is, um, I'm going to deal with this, but I'm going to deal with this in my way, not your way, because the way that I handle this needs to be in a way that my glory is not revealed the way that it will be. And so you'll notice at a wedding where we said, this is why these details at the beginning were, were significant, at a wedding where all of the bride and groom's family most of the village, if not all of the village, were present. When we get finished with this story where Jesus turns water into wine, five people believed. You notice the manifestation of His glory wasn't to everybody there because His hour had not yet come. So we have the wedding. We have the woman. We have the wine. We have the wine. This is verse 6. This is really the issue is that the wine had run out. Verse 6, there were set there six water pots of stone after the manner of purifying of the Jews containing two or three firkins apiece. Now, nobody really knows what a firkin is. It's uh, literally two or three measures apiece. Uh, there are some good guesses, but nobody knows exactly what that is. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water, and they filled it up to the brim. And he said unto them, draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast. And they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast tasted the water, it was made wine, and knew not whence it was, but the servants which drew it knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom, and you know how it goes. He says, this is better than the stuff we had before. So the wine. First, it's worth noting, we're talking about real wine here. It's not grape juice. Wine is that, that, that's being uh, referred to here, and there are some people that really come to this passage and try to do several different things with it. Uh, some say that, again, it was just grape juice. There was no alcoholic content in this wine. Uh, that's not true. Some even go so far as to say that the miracle was Jesus took the water that was in the water pots and made it better than the wine that they had before. And so what they had was really good water. Well, you can't get that from the text. Okay, We're talking about real wine. This was a very, very common thing at a celebration like this. Um, matter of fact... Um, it is real wine, but I would also say, as we're as we're thinking, this is just a side note. You're thinking about what this, uh, how it might compare. Uh, it was wine that would have been uh, much more diluted than what your typical bottle of wine here that you would buy would be. So it's one part wine would be mixed with anywhere between three and ten parts water. Okay, so what I mean by that is. If you had one glass of wine or one glass of wine like that that you poured into a trough, you'd pour ten more glasses of water. You can imagine how diluted that would be. You could still, you know, if you drank enough, 
depending on the dilution, you could still get drunk, but it's, it's not like what we're thinking about and what we consume now. That being said, the truth of Scripture is that it never prohibits the use of alcohol. It prohibits the misuse of alcohol. And sometimes in our zeal, we can start saying things and um, drawing lines where Scripture doesn't draw lines. And we can do it in a way that um, really misunderstands what the intent here is. So that's enough for that. It's an observation One of the points that I want to make, remember this is a sign, which means it's going to carry some symbolic meaning. Wine is frequently symbolic, used in a symbolic way to represent joy in the Bible. So look in Psalm 104. Now this is going to be, it's going to be important for the way that we understand this text. Psalm 104. Verse 15, Psalm 104, verse 15. We're just going to hit some of these texts for what they are. It says, And wine that maketh glad the heart of man, oil to make his face to shine, and bread which strengthens a a man's heart. You see there, speaking of wine, it's the wine that makes glad the heart of man. In the book of Judges, I'm not going to turn here, chapter 9, verse 15 Metaphorically speaking, the vine is speaking about the wine that makes both the heart of man and the gods to rejoice or to be glad or to be merry. In Isaiah 55, verse 1, this will be a familiar passage to you. Isaiah 55, verse 1, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye by and eat. Yea, come by wine and milk without money and without price. This is obviously meant to be something that is positive, not negative. It's something that's meant to be attractive, not something that's meant to be avoided. So, so in this sense, wine is used in a good way. We could go through other passages in the Old Testament to see the connection between Wine and joy symbolically used. Now it is worth saying that there are just as many passages in the Old Testament that condemn drunkenness for drunkenness sake. And so don't get the wrong idea. So the wine. The wine. It had run out. And then fourth, and this is really where we zero in, the sign. The sign, the miracle, the sign that Jesus performs. Well, we see in verse 6 that it says that there were set there six water pots of stone. During that time, water pots could have been made of what we would call ceramic, like earthen type material, ceramic. But these water pots were made of stone, and, and the reason these water pots were made of stone is it says that they were they were set aside or they were for the purpose of 
purifying. This is a ceremonial thing. Those water pots were there and, and, and stone would be less of a contaminant than if you were to have an earthen type vessel. And so probably the way this worked is as people uh, came in, it was somewhere they could become ceremonially clean by washing their hands. More than likely, utensils and pots were washed in these water pots to be ceremonially clean. This was something that was directly tied to, obviously, the Jewish religion. Right? It was directly tied to worship and pleasing the Lord and those kinds of things. And if we're not careful, we will miss the fact that when Jesus comes in and sees the problem and says, I know what we'll do. We'll take these pots that are meant to somehow ceremonially purify this whole thing. And we'll turn it into wine. That right out of the gate, Jesus is saying. There's no need for this Old Testament ceremonial stuff anymore. You don't need these pots here. We're going to use the the water that was meant for ceremonial cleansing. And we're going to turn it into something that's meant for rejoicing. This would be. If we're not careful, we'll miss it. This would be a direct affront to the Jewish leaders of the day. They would have hated that. As a matter of fact, it would have put Jesus in a light that automatically would be opposed to them. Jesus is saying, look, these these pots with these ceremonial uh, uh, cleansings and this sort of thing, it's unnecessary here. We're here to rejoice. We're here to celebrate. And if we're not careful, we'll let the ceremony get in the way of what we're here to really do. And so part of the significance of this sign is the fact that Jesus has come to replace the old covenant with a new covenant that will usher in an abundance of joy. Now, all of that's significant. All of that is significant. You remember whenever, um, well, I think it's in one of these texts I'm fixing to go to, so I won't, I won't hit that. Look in Luke 22. Look in Luke 22. Do you remember what Jesus, I know you remember because we still use it. This is what we do. Do you remember what Jesus uses? Symbolically, and what we still to this day use symbolically for the sign of the new covenant? Well, it's wine, right? Luke twenty-two nineteen. He took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave unto them, saying, "This is my body, which is given for you, and this do in remembrance of me." Likewise, also the cup after supper, saying, "This cup, which was wine." is the new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. 
Now, you might think we're grasping at straws by trying to just figure out, you know, everywhere that wine is used and seeing how we can draw a connection to the text. Well, that's not what we're doing. But again, if we understand, and that's why it's so important that we do understand what it means that Jesus was doing a sign rather than Jesus was just simply doing a miracle then we understand that a sign is loaded with symbolic meaning that goes beyond this is just what happened. So what would we do? Where would we go to figure out what that symbolic meaning was? Well, we'd go to Scripture, wouldn't we? I mean, I don't have the liberty to just start talking about things and telling you things that I think it might be, could be, or would be nice if it were. Jesus says symbolically this wine that I'm... We're talking about in Luke 22 now. Symbolically, this wine is the cup of the new covenant. So Jesus is replacing the old with the new. Look in Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 18. It says, And the disciples of John and the Pharisees used to fast, and they come and say unto him, that is to Jesus, Why do the disciples of John and of the Pharisees fast, but thy disciples fast not? And Jesus said unto them, Can the children of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken away from them, and then they shall fast in those days. No man also soweth a piece of new cloth on an old garment, else the new piece that filled it up take away from the old, and the rent or the tear is made worse. And no man putteth new wine into old bottles, Else the new wine burst the bottles and the wine is spilled and the bottles will be marred and the new wine must be put into new bottles. What's Jesus saying here? Well, we get a couple of parallels here. Number one, they come and they say, why are your disciples not fasting? Like the rest of us good religious people. John's disciples fast. The Pharisees all fast. Why aren't you fasting? And Jesus says, this is not the time for fasting. This is the time for celebrating. The bridegroom is here. It doesn't make sense that you would be fasting. It doesn't make sense that you would be mourning. The bridegroom is in your midst. There will be a time for that, but it's not now. And then Jesus goes on to say, essentially, I'm, I'm, going, I'm, I'm, I'm pushing the old out and I'm bringing in the new. He's saying that what I'm doing here, what the bridegroom is doing, is he is getting rid of the old. In other words, the old covenant doesn't just need a few patches on it. Okay, patches will only make things worse. I wonder how many of us try to function as if all the law needed was a couple of patches. Right. Throw the righteousness of Christ on there for a bit of a patch but I still want to keep this, that, and the other. As far as my standing before God, he says, no, that's not compatible. You can't do that. He says, you don't take 
new wine and put it into old wineskins. Why? Because it doesn't belong there. What is the point that he's making? Well, the point that he's making is that the old covenant and the new covenant are not compatible. You can't mix them. This is not an add-on. This is not a patch. This is a completely different thing. Now, in, in, in the wedding feast of Cana and Galilee, Jesus comes in and says, what, these pots for purifying? No, we're going to make wine out of those. And we're going to celebrate. It's a very bold thing. It's a very, very countercultural thing. Now, another symbolic reality as it refers to wine is that in the Old Testament, An abundance of wine is used symbolically to represent the joy that will be ushered in when the Messiah comes. The joy that will be ushered in when the Messiah comes. Joel talks about that in Joel chapter 2. And he talks about this abundance of wine that's coming in. And that's right before he's uh, in the passage where he says that the years that the locusts have eaten shall be restored to you. We're talking about when Messiah comes. Well, in our passage in John, uh, in verses 6 and 7, you remember Jesus says, take those water pots and, and, and fill them up. And you know the detail that John uses there is, they filled them to the brim. Filled them to the brim. Now I said earlier, there's some confusion as far as nailing down exactly how big those were. Most people think, just based on um, archaeology and the sorts of pots that they've been able to uh, reconstruct were, were, were there in those days, that we're talking about somewhere between 20 and 30 gallons. There's six of these. We're talking about 150 to 180 gallons of wine filled to the brim. Now, if we're looking for something symbolic there from the Old Testament, I think the abundance of wine that's coming and referred to in Joel is easily pinpointed there in John chapter 2. John, uh, 150 to 180 gallons of wine. It's, it's come. And so, again, what's the, uh, what's the, what's the point? Well, the point is not this 150 to 180 gallons of wine is just a symbolic representation of the Messiah. It's a symbolic representation of the joy of those who will see Messiah. The joy of those who will come to know Him. The joy of those who will come to trust Him. You see, the truth is, Again, this is there. What Jesus is symbolizing as He takes those pots that were set aside for ceremonial use is He's saying this temple ceremonial worship is empty. Not just in substance. but There's no joy here. There's no joy here. It's bondage. There's no substance. Now look in Romans chapter 14. 
and hopefully this ties in where we're going and it also ties in the main emphasis of what's being said here. Romans chapter 14, verse 17. It says, For the kingdom of God is not meat and drink, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. One of the things that John chapter 2 is meant to emphasize in the reader's mind, and it would have emphasized in a Jewish reader's mind, is that the Messiah is here. And along with the Messiah is coming an abundance of joy as His kingdom is ushered in. We said it this morning, and it wasn't calculated, obviously. We go through the Psalms one at a time, and we go through John section by section. But if John is going to emphasize joy and the abundance of joy that comes along with Jesus Christ, how much sense does it make for Christians, those who have come to know Him, to live their lives as spiritual eels? What sort of a reflection is that on the work of grace and on God's kingdom that we've come to be a part of. Again, Romans says, it's not the outward things here, but it's righteousness and it's peace and it's joy in the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 would tell us that one of the things that the Spirit is producing, part of that spiritual fruit in the life of the believer is joy. It's joy. Joy in what? Well, it's joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's joy in the fact that I've come to know Him. It's joy in the fact that uh, I've, I've come to believe and trust that He has taken my sin debt upon Himself and I've been reconciled with God. It's joy in the fact that He is my mediator and in my times of trouble and difficulty, I can go to God through Him with confidence, not just that He hears me, but that He loves me and that He answers me when I cry. It's joy. Now, we can say, and we said this earlier, that joy and, and happiness are not exactly the same thing. And that's true. But don't miss the fact. Don't miss the fact that when Jesus comes to the wedding in Cana, Galilee, what He does prolongs the celebration. It prolongs the celebration. Let me read this quote by J.C. Ryle. It's an extended quote, but it's worth, worth reading. He says, True religion was never meant to make men melancholy. On the contrary, it was intended to increase real joy and happiness among men. The servant of Christ unquestionably ought to have nothing to do 
with races and balls and theaters and such like amusements which tend to frivolity and dissipation, if not to sin. But he has no right to hand over innocent recreations and family gatherings to the devil and to the world. The Christian who withdraws entirely from society of his fellow men and walks the earth with a face as melancholy as if he was always attending a funeral does injury to the cause of the gospel. A cheerful, kindly spirit is a great recommendation to a believer. It is a positive misfortune to Christianity when a Christian cannot smile. A merry heart and a readiness to take part in all innocent myrrh are gifts of inestimable value. They go far to soften prejudices and to take up stumbling blocks out of the way and to make way for Christ and the gospel. Now, this is a word that's aptly spoken in his day and in ours as well. You know, it's not uncommon for us at times to find um, maybe we get in this attitude ourselves or, or maybe we know, who, know folks who do, but just to get in such a funk that all you can see is negative, 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 and bad and bad and bad and bad and bad. You say, oh, we live in this sin-cursed world and my, my soul is just vexed and, and I wish things were more pure and more righteous and I wish I were more pure and I were more righteous. And the Bible says, get over yourself. The Messiah has come and things are getting more righteous. And you are growing more righteous. And if the fact that you're so self-centered and so impatient that you can't wait on God to complete the good work that He started is getting in the way of your joy, get over yourself. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 11, Verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. You see, again, brothers and sisters, sometimes we can get this mixed up. Sometimes we, we think the more spiritual we are, the more sober, the more melancholy, the more, um, uh, the less smiles. And, and again, I'm not talking about giddy, silly stuff. I'm talking about the reality that your soul has been saved from the pit of hell. I'm talking about the reality that every day you wake up, God is providentially involved in your life and is actively working all things together for your good. I'm talking about the fact that you've been made part of a kingdom that is growing and conquering. And I'm talking about the fact that we live in anticipation for the day when Christ will come and in the fullness of His kingdom, we will be made whole. We have something to rejoice about, don't we? We have something to celebrate, don't we? And so here really is the question. From John chapter two, if we look at the if we look at the passage as a whole, this is the way that it goes. Christ shows up to a celebration. Something there's a roadblock that shows up. And then through Christ's miraculous power, the celebration goes on. That's the way that works. 
Now again, there's some symbolic meaning behind it and we've talked about that. What do we get out of that? Well, here's the question, Christian. Or maybe just here's the question here. Have you arrived at the wedding feast yet? Now, I'm not talking about the feasts that will one day happen in Revelation. But you realize in a symbolic way, every time we come together to worship, we're at a wedding celebration. Right? My bridegroom has betrothed himself to me. He has brought me to himself. I've been given the the engagement ring of the Holy Spirit, right? Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm waiting on Him to come and for the fullness of that wedding day and marriage, full consummation. So have you found joy in Christ? Joy in believing and trusting in Him. Joy in the fact that your sin debt has been taken care of and there are no hindrances between you and fellowship with the Father. Do you know the joy that goes along with fellowship? That is through the Word, through prayer, through corporate worship, through times alone with just you and Jesus. Do you know the joy that goes along with that? Maybe we ask the question, have you known that joy at one time, but it's faded? You know, that can happen. And what happens when our joy begins to fade, we could talk about a lot of different specifics. But what happens every time is we get our eyes on the wrong thing. We turn our focus on the wrong thing. Our expectations are placed in the wrong areas. Jesus says, again, in this John 15 passage, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. You know, brothers and sisters, when our joy in Christ begins to fade, one of the things that we ought to be checking immediately is, where have I deviated? Where am I not believing, not trusting, not obeying? Now, it's not always as easy as just correcting a behavior. As a matter of fact, that's never the case. Your heart left long before your behavior deviated. Jesus said, the reason I've spoken these things to you is that you might have joy. And if you keep my commandments and you abide in my love, you will have joy. One says, well, what about this and what about that? Well, if the priority of our life is to press into the kingdom of God, if the priority of our life, priority of my life and your life is to exalt the glory of God, then my number one priority is going to be to have the deepest unbroken fellowship with Christ that I can possibly have. And whatever gets in the way of that, I've got to get that out of my life. Jesus says, you ought to be celebrating. There's new wine. There's an abundance of wine. There's joy to be had. 
brothers and sisters, if you've known that joy and that joy has faded, then we really need to heed the words of Mary to those servants. You remember what she says in the passage. Do all that He tells you to do. That's what she told the servants. Some of us think we can live the Christian life. I say some of us. We're all tempted to think this. That we can live the Christian life as if we're at a Golden Corral buffet. And we'll take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. But we don't want that. and We don't like this. And if I could just get this customized Christianity to my liking where I get to leave off what I don't like and I get to take on what I do like. You know, so it would be easy for some of us to walk away and say, well, you know, good sermon. After all, I found out it's not a sin to drink wine. I'll take that. But then we leave off the rest. Oh, we're so good at the buffet picking, aren't we? The fact that the wine here was symbolic for joy in Christ and doing all that He's told us to do in avoiding drunkenness and avoiding legalistic stances and avoiding trying to um, accumulate self-righteousness through ceremonial or outward performances, but finding our all in all in Jesus Christ. All of our joy is found in Him. All of our wisdom is found in Him. All of our sanctification is found in Him. All of our redemption is found in Him. That's something to rejoice over, isn't it? Notice I didn't say anything about you. There's no place for joy in the fact that I've cleaned myself up so well. There's no place for joy in the fact that, that I've found some secret worldly wisdom that's helped me this, that, and the other. There's no place in joy in prioritizing anything over and above the priority of Christ. And so Jesus comes to this celebration and essentially says, keep celebrating. Brothers and sisters, if you've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, keep celebrating. Let's pray. Father, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You that You've communicated to us in such a way that we can understand. And You've also communicated to us things that we would not naturally catch in and of ourselves. And so, Father, I pray that as we leave this passage in John chapter 2, that we would see that You would use it to manifest Your glory and that we would in turn believe. Father, would You cause our hearts to rejoice and would You cause us to prioritize joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in His name we pray. Amen.